From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount Plus. Yes! Hey, y'all. It's Bud. I wanted to thank you for making Barton and Bud such a success. With your listenership, we became one of the most popular college football shows in only eight months. But with Barton gone, we have a lot of holes to fill as a company. One of those is on the Cover 3 podcast. And I'm happy to let you know that I'll be bringing my analysis to the Cover 3 podcast, both in regular appearances and in helping to set the table behind the scenes. We'll also be taking some of your Barton and Bud mailbag questions on Cover 3 since Apple finally updated its review section. We'll be dropping some Cover 3 episodes into this feed for a while, so you can get the feel for it. But please do subscribe to Cover 3 now, because at some point in the future, this feed might get repurposed. Thanks again, guys, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Danny Cannell, Chip Patterson, Barton Simmons, and Tom Fernelli. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Finelli, that's Danny Cannell, that's Bud Elliott, I'm Chip Patterson. A lot to get to today. Uh, it's been a busy week in terms of roster management. Uh, we got the ins, the outs. Of course, we'll be tracking the transfer portal all through the spring, uh, but we are going to be getting to that early entry deadline. Now it's come with some other pieces too. We've had the announcements about players that are going to come back for that extra COVID year. So we're using this as a little bit of a reset as we start to get everything together and turn our attention to 2021. But before we get to that, we want to start with some headlines and we want to begin with the continued fallout from Jeremy Pruitt's firing at Tennessee. Now we mentioned on the emergency podcast, Bud, that you know, you, you've taken a, a strong stance. You wrote a piece after Texas uh, fired Tom Herman about uh, how a letter of intent should be dealt with with some of those prospects that have committed to a coach that has been fired. So uh, Dylan Brooks is among the prospects that is asking out of his LOI. We also have, and I, I need, if, if you got any, any new information on this, Big Cat Bryant has deleted a tweet. And we all know deleting tweets, you know, we don't know what that means, but uh, how are you starting to see the continued fallout on the personnel side of things in terms of the roster and the players that, uh, that Tennessee is going to be looking at moving forward? Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty committed to this idea, right? I think with the advent of the early signing period where you're having kids sign far before the coaching search cycle is done. If you sign somewhere and you don't actually enroll and then the school fires their coach three, four weeks later, they probably knew about the thing they were going to fire him before you actually signed. So this is kind of a bait-and-switch type, type tactic. And I think it should be a hard and fast rule where, where you don't have to ask the school for your release. It should just be automatically granted if you want it. You can, don't have to wait for the school to figure out, will we give the kid his release, will we not? I think, I think it should, should apply to Texas, certainly should apply to Tennessee. Any school where the head coach changes after the early signing period, if you've not enrolled yet, because you know once you've enrolled, it creates other issues where you're technically a student there. Uh, but if you're not enrolled yet, I, I think you should be let out. I, I don't expect Dylan Brooks to sign with Tennessee. And as far as Big Cat Bryant, the reason Tennessee had an in on him Steel. was because of Kevin Steele. But also, Shelton Felton, I believe, was his high school coach. 
the the linebackers coach for the Vols who was fired. Uh, so there's some smoke there that Oklahoma might be picking him up as well after they just picked up Wanya Morris uh, starting left tackle for the Vols last week. Goodness gracious. Uh, Danny. Do, we, tr- do we trust the NCAA to do the right thing? <laughs> because I am firmly in, a, in agreement with you, bud. Um, this is just, it makes, co- it's common sense. Like, why are we going to hose these kids that thought they were signing on for something and now they're getting a completely different experience, including the staff, which is you know the most important thing. I know I tell every high schooler, don't go there because of the staff or a relationship. Make sure you choose a school. And yet I went to Florida State because I like Mark Richt and Bobby Bowden. Like that was one of the, 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 the deciding factors. So I understand what it's like to be 18 and get attached to coaches on the staff. But this one, I do think it's just – I think it's so cut and dry, especially too with what's on the horizon where you're going to be allowed to transfer and we're on this cusp of free agency in college football. Is this really one where you want to take the last stand, you know, and, and, and like really make a statement? I don't think so. I, there's another aspect to this where if you're worried about what it does for Tennessee, uh, you know, hey, does this devastate Tennessee's program? The whole recruiting class could just depart. Well, guess what? That's part of the punishment like that. Sh- and it should be. I'm totally OK with that. If it devastates the program, well, then you shouldn't shouldn't have been messing around with some of the things that are going on there. So I, I try to be pro player in a lot of instances. Sometimes I get accused of, you know, hey, not wanting to pay the players and have them employees, which is a whole nother conversation. But in this one, I think you have to do the right thing by the players. Is it hilarious that uh, now listen, Dan Patrick came out all during the Big Ten like return to uh, to like I felt like he he was running his own information mill and and certainly if you watch the video of his show yesterday, I mean the guy was just reading his text messages on the air. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't exactly say that he was like you know running his sources by an editor at anything. He was just very much like right off the group chat reading it on the air. So I don't. Uh, put a lot on the idea that it really was cash in McDonald's bags that was being handed out, but it is hilarious, right? I mean, <laughs> if that's really what this becomes, like we already had the, uh, you know, like the internet joke, like you take a picture of McDonald's bag. It's like, just got an offer from Tennessee. Like, I mean, there's the meme ability of this moment is, is very funny, right? I can't, I, I can't uh, prevent myself um, I don't have enough journalistic integrity to not at least give some time for us to laugh at how hilarious this is. We've mentioned that it is a little bit of a content, just all of the content whenever something goes crazy and, and sideways at Tennessee. But is the is the expectation that we might get McDonald's bags and Dan Patrick's group chat aside, is the expectation that we're going to be looking at um, uh, somebody was ratting out what the bag man was doing uh, at Tennessee? Well, first of all, did you did you see the uh, tweet from Florida's basketball team after Florida beat Tennessee last night? Oh my god! Because Florida ran Tennessee last night. That was crazy. What happened? And they they just tweeted like the graphic with the score, and they just said, "I'm loving it." <laughs> you gotta be kidding me! That's incredible. No, dude, yeah. Oh my gosh! Props to you. You you earned your uh, your Chick fil A uh, media meal. Whoever that uh, that <laughs> sports information department staffer is, but uh, but I mean, what's the expectation in terms of like as this story continues to unfurl, and you know we haven't even had like a, a notice of allegations from the NCAA. All this is just rumors and and things coming from inside the Tennessee program. Um, like, is this going to be 
expansive to the point where they are able to pin down enough evidence that really, really damages the program? Or is this something that might just be limited to one or two players leads to some vacated wins and um, maybe some scholarship sanctions moving forward? Basically, where are you putting your, uh, your barometer in terms of the expectations for what the fallout might be at Tennessee? This is why. No, go ahead, bud. Putting on the lawyer hat here, this is why for cause is just the start of the conversation, right? Because unless Jeremy Pruitt gets his money, he's probably going to do some talking. And the Mm -hmm. other guys who also got fired probably also might have some things to say unless they get some of their money. So when you get your money, you don't do quite as much talking. So this this lawsuit that Pruitt's going to file, I know his lawyer's already out there making a lot of claims. I don't think it'll ever see the light of day in a court. And so a lot of this is going to come down to at what stage does this settle, right? What 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 can the NCAA get its hands on? Because if this goes to deposition, well, then maybe they're able to actually you know get their hands on some stuff. Otherwise, maybe not. I I think the comments from the president were instructive though, saying that how how shocked uh, he was at how many instances of of level one and level two violations, and they were just they were throwing it all out there. I was like, man, you guys sure you don't want to hold a little of this back? This is this commitment to integrity is is pretty extreme. <laughs> It's admirable. Uh, it's yeah. I was, that's what I pretty. I was, it's going to really depend on you know where this lawsuit goes because I I do feel like it's we're going to see like a kind of change in the dynamic where at first it's Tennessee self sabotaging itself so it could come up with the cause so it can get out of the buyout but then uh, now it's going to flip to where it's going to be on Pruitt's side where they're going to be the ones looking to kind of you know dig up the dirt and the hell they might not have to dig it up they might just know it you never know so it's it's going to be interesting because tennessee was kind of walking that tightrope where it was like all right we got to find enough so we could make it work but we can't find too much because we can't completely tank the program it's uh i mean this is like get your popcorn ready type stuff i think like i think we're all going to be just and i think dan patrick's totally agree with you guys. I mean, he's an entertainer. He's not a reporter. He can get away with these things and it's not going to affect his credibility because he's just Dan Patrick on radio host. He's great at it. But I'm also curious to know what type of collateral damage there could be. Cause yes, Tennessee has get impacted, but just like just doing a little bit of like common sense research when you look out there, well, they're not exactly like, and this is, this is something I saw on Twitter. So don't take it for, you know, anything <laughs> other than it's Twitter. But if you're a Tennessee fan, you're like, well, wait a, wait a second. Why are we giving bags? And we're not even the top three class in the country. What are we doing to lose out to Georgia? What are we doing to lose out to Alabama? And remember a few weeks ago, there was this, you know, rumor that Georgia had been quote sloppy with some of their recruiting practices. Like, there's, I, I just, if I was Greg Sankey, I would be watching this very carefully and maybe with a little bit of anxiety saying, you know, hopefully there's just one fall guy here because this could get ugly. I mean, you know, reading some of the reports that it was around this recruitment of Amarius Mims who ended up going to Georgia. Like, was his bag not full enough or did somebody else have a bigger bag? Like all those questions I think are okay to ask and I'm not throwing, we're, we're going to go back to being a Georgia pot. I promise they're going to be good next season, but those types of things. And when you, when you talk about the amount of people that were fired with reputations that come in there, how nasty recruiting is already, like they, I, this is why I think Jeremy Pruitt has a chance to recoup some of his money. Cause he's probably going to be like, Hey, I can do a lot of talking and you know, the, the way the agents work and they're all in this too, and they're protecting their, all their clients. 
I just think this is going to be a fascinating offseason for not only Tennessee, but potentially some other players. Remember Cam Newton? Uh, what happened with his? It wasn't just Auburn that was, you know, had some bad news around it. No, it was Mississippi um, State was the 180K. They had, exactly. ta- they had tagged the 180K to Mississippi State, but then he went to Auburn. Exactly. So there's a lot that I think we'll learn through this that's going to be thoroughly entertaining as long as it's not your school that's involved in it. This is kind of like when you burn down your own house for the insurance money, but then you also catch your neighbor's house on fire, right? Like Greg yep. Sankey in this place, in, in this this analogy is the fire department. He's getting over there <laughs> full, full sirens. That they've got a five alarm fire. He's like, let's put this thing out now. Settle this thing. Tennessee. Tennessee, you looking at me? Like, hey, 12 million. We make $30 million of school off the SEC network. What, what are we doing here? Like, let's let's put this thing out, get Pruitt four or five million and be done with it. Yeah. Uh, we've also reached the uh, digging through Florida recruits old tweets for signs because I got a DM from somebody yesterday and it's from uh, it's from a kid who, who's currently on Tennessee committed to Tennessee is an old tweet of his that said everybody in the city is getting a chance to go to school man what does McDonald's say I'm loving it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't know so, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, do you guys, what do you guys think? Well, I know you probably did this and I missed it, but what do you think they'll do? I, I think the smartest thing they could do as far as coach, like what to do with a hire is just go with Kevin Steele as an interim. And, and it's like an extended audition. It's probably going to be a really bad year. You kind of distance yourself one more year. And I think you'll might have better options available in a year of people who might say, okay, the worst is behind us. We know all the information. We know just how bad it is. We know where our recruits stand. Now I can come in. I don't know. That's my opinion is they should keep Kevin Steele as an interim, you know, a head coach. And if he works out great, maybe you stumble into him. If not, you, and he's aware of it, you get a one-year audition and you move on in a year. Yes. It, it kind of reminds me it's, it's not all that dissimilar to the situation Illinois was in a few years ago in which Tim Beckman had been fired unexpectedly because of like player abuse kind of stuff, scandal allegations. So he gets fired. They, they turn the offensive coordinator, Bill Cubitt into the interim coach. But at the time the school did not have an athletic director. So the board of trustees at the time who were acting as the athletic director then made Cubitt the interim coach. They made him permanent. And then they hired an AD who then came in and fired Cubitt right away and brought in Lovey Smith. And while that worked out in some areas for Illinois, I don't feel like that's a blueprint you want to follow because that's the thing right now. When you look at Tennessee, they don't have an AD and they have to hire an AD first. Although considering the background that has gone into the Pruitt stuff, there's a, I would, I would not be surprised if the AD search doesn't last long, put it that way. I wouldn't be surprised if they've got something lined up and a couple people already, you know, as, as their main choices for that. But it's a weird situation in that I, like you said, Danny, I don't know what the legitimate candidate pool is going to be because let's say it takes a few weeks and now we're in February and now you've got your AD and now your AD starts the coaching search and then signing day comes like, I don't know how many coaches are going to finish this 2021 recruiting class and then immediately leave for another job. Like we saw it last year with Mel Tucker leaving Colorado for Michigan state, which was again in a very situation, very late in the process of firing your coach unexpectedly or retiring, moving on. 
it's just, I, I think that, yeah, Kevin Steele probably makes the most sense for 2021. And then you go into December next year and maybe Steele does well enough and Tennessee surprises and he becomes the permanent, you make him a long-term deal, or you're just at least in a position where you're going to have a lot better candidates. And plus the other thing you have to consider too, is with this NCAA stuff hanging over the head, some coaches might be even more hesitant to take the job because you might get hammered with, you know, Al, you, you might get, you know, a postseason ban or whatever the hell NCAA decides to hand out because of all this. So there's just so much we don't know about the situation that it's hard to imagine Tennessee is going to get its top candidate. So I, I wrote this morning for 247sports.com. It'll be up in, by, by the time you guys hear this show uh, about kind of creative contracting ways that you can use to still get a good coach in this time. And I looked at the Baylor example where, where they gave Matt Rule seven years. Like they, they were realistic. They acknowledged that, hey, we're going to be in a huge hole. This is going to take some time to dig out of. And, and I'm glad Tom brought up Michigan State because, because I actually think I think that one is a really interesting one. Mel Tucker got six years and like $34 million guaranteed, and they gave him the, the eighth biggest assistant coach salary pool in the country. But there's also an interesting provision in there that, if you recall at the time, they were being looked at for all of the uh, – how they handled the sexual assault allegations, right? Well, that, but there was also an NCAA thing going on oh. uh, at, at the time, which I think has been cleared up now. But in that contract, it says if any probation or you know scholarship restrictions come down as a result of the prior staff, this contract will be extended and guaranteed for the length of those things. So let's, let's say, for instance, if Michigan State had been hit with like a three-year probation, Mel Tucker's contract would have morphed from a six-year into a nine-year guaranteed deal. There are ways that if you have the cash – and you know you have the, the guy you want to, to do it with, you can get him to come. It's just, you know, like, I don't think anybody's going to sign up with, with the off chance that he's fired in three years again. Mm, good good call. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian working to finalize his staff for Texas. Uh, he took Jeff Banks, a very good recruiter, special teams coach at Alabama, going to be in the same position at Texas. He also took Kyle Flood, offensive line coach at Alabama, going to be in the same position. And uh, we learned this week that reportedly we are looking at Pete Kwiatkowski, longtime Washington uh, defensive coordinator, as somebody who was co-defensive coordinator. He was defensive coordinator. Then Jimmy Lake gets promoted to co-defensive coordinator. Then Jimmy Lake gets the head coaching job. Pete Kwiatkowski stays on as defensive coordinator, but then takes this opportunity I, I mean, if, if there's a, a specific Washington angle to this that you've got, I would love to hear it. I think it kind of makes sense after the other guy got picked for the jobs, you know, all along the way. But, you know, what are you thinking about Sark's staff right now? And is it uh, inspiring any more confidence in what the Longhorns are going to be able to do under his leadership? Well, I... I... <laughs> I think it's a good staff. I mean, if you look at the kind of money that Texas is giving Sark to hire a staff, it's not a surprise that he's able to pull in guys that, you know, from other jobs. And I, I don't know if there's a real connect other than Sark coaching at Washington. I don't think him and Kwiatkowski crossed paths while they were there. So I don't know if there's a real connection there. I just think that Kwiatkowski's got a good defense. I mean, I think it's a smart hire just because it's somebody who has been kind of a Jimmy Lake and Washington defense stand the last few years. I would take anybody I could get from that defense to come and run mine. So that's my favorite hire of the ones he's made so far. But yeah, he's, he's going to have a good coaching staff, man. He's got a lot of money to spend. I, I like that, that, that Kwiatkowski has, has done a nice job defending a variety of offenses mm. in the Pac-12 North. Right, I mean, you you had the air raid when when Leach was at Washington State. You have Stanford, which runs a lot of like twenty two personnel. Uh, so he's he's seen a lot of things thrown at him and and done a nice job. Obviously, Jimmy Lake was was the brains of the operation for a while. But I, I think I think this is a, pr- a pretty nice hire. 
the, the selection of Jeff Banks to be on his staff at Texas is, is very good, in my opinion, for recruiting. That guy knows what he's doing in the state of Texas. I, I think it's a good staff. I mean, but I don't know that, that getting a good staff at Texas is, for the most part, the issue. It's keeping all the other players out of, of your staff. What do you mean? Like boosters, people who, who boosters, think yeah. they should have more, more influence in, in their staff, you know, people who want a piece of your time. You know, having somebody above, above you, or excuse me, above uh, Sark to tell him no, he's busy, right? Like, hey, he's handling this, kind of like like what Saban had when he got to Bama. Like, hey, no, he's doing it his way. Leave him alone. Just cut the check and shut up. That's yeah, that's kind of what they need. You need somebody to keep Buddy Garrity in line. <laughs> <laughs> but guess what else he has too, though? And this is a unique experience. To them, I know we have the SEC network, but you have the Longhorn network, which is another pull on your time. I mean, you, you know, it's easier to say no to the SEC network because they can say, "Okay, Nick, you don't want to do it. We'll go get Gus, or we'll go get Kirby, or we'll get some other head coach." Longhorn network, it is your network. You have to do it. I know that can be extremely frustrating at times, and. I don't know if you guys remember, um, uh, Tom Herman had a little run in with there with, you know, uh, Noel Galindo, who was the host and, you know, just it's, it's a complicated deal. It's that's part of the deal that goes with being the head coach at Texas, all the ancillary things that go into it, you know, having worked alongside Mac Brown, he's talked to him about it all the time. It is a massive job. That's probably more unique than any other in the country. And it's not, you know, it's not, doesn't make it better or worse. It's just extremely unique with the type of impact the boosters have with the expectations that are going to be on you with the Longhorn network, all of it. I mean, you are, this is where I do feel love where Sark is a better fit than Charlie strong was. And Tom Herman was because he's better at dealing with that type of stuff. He'll be able to say no, but do it in a manner where they don't feel offended. You know, like, and that's a unique skill. Like you can say, you know, you can, you can appease people without appeasing them. Right. You don't have to give them all the time they may want, but you can give it to them when you have the time and you can still keep them happy. How crazy is it, though? You know, because I was reading some of these things about, you know, Nick Saban's ticked off, you know, they're raiding his staff again. Here it happens. But you lose, you know, you lose your offensive line coach, you lose your coordinator, and you might get upgrades at both, like possibly. All right, so I was going to use that as a little bit of bridge before we hit the break. So Doug Marone, Alabama's not confirmed any of this, but it it is widely reported, and I think almost assumed that Doug Marone's going to come in as the new offensive line coach. Bill O'Brien comes in as the new offensive coordinator. I mean, are are those upgrades? Well, it remains to be seen, but they're clearly qualified. I mean, where? (laughs) And let's not forget. Let's not forget. Coaches have egos, right? Like coaches, you talk to a lot of them, you interview them. They are the, they have God complex. It's the, you know, they're where else have we seen a head coach? I know we've seen some take time off and then realize, Hey, the opportunities aren't there. So then I'm going to get back in. You know, Charlie Weiss is an example of that, but NFL head coaches either taking just a coordinator position or even lower rung an offensive line coach. Like that's unheard of for a coach to have to like to to humble himself and say, yeah, I'm going to go take a year and just reset and just be a a coach. That does not happen. And yet it's a testament to Saban's, I don't even know what the name of it, school of rehab for coaches. I don't know what the official name is for coach, you know, coaching rehab that you go to in Tuscaloosa, but it's a, it's a testament to his grace, greatness, his reverence. And it's a testament to the process that if you want to get back in coaching and you want a head job, 
you go to Tuscaloosa and you you stand, spend a year or two and you'll probably be right at the top of the heap when the next coaching carousel starts going. I think I saw Michael Felder call it the school for wayward boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. My parents almost sent me to one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up on the other side, we start to take a look at the 2021 rosters. It was a big week. There were some surprising announcements potential first-round NFL draft picks deciding they want to spend another year in college, some predictable exits, and also, even beyond the NFL draft deadline, uh, we got to see who was coming back for an extra year uh, thanks to the extra year of eligibility that comes with COVID. So we're resetting the rosters. We're taking a look across the country. What stood out to us next? Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball. And baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, (laughs) nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So the um, like there are some some places where you're going to have uh, lots of exits every single year. You know, a place like uh, Georgia, a place like Ohio State, a place like Alabama. Um, you know, just because there's so much talent on the roster, we we will discuss each of those here. But I've got to start with the national runner up because there are some huge developments that make it look to me. Um, like the Buckeyes are ready to suit up and go make a run for it again. The headline's going to be Chris Olave. He is coming back for a senior season. He was a junior, could have been an early entry. Many thought he would. He comes back, and now him and Garrett Wilson uh, are the best wide receiver duo in the country. And as we've discussed on this podcast, you, you look at the depth there with players like Julian Fleming, Jackson Smith-Jigba, that wide receiver room is ridiculous. Um, that offense should absolutely cook. But even then, like uh, on the defensive side, Haskell Garrett, he was a true senior and one of the best defensive linemen in the Big Ten, and he decides that he's going to come back. I mean, I'm looking up up and down this Ohio State roster, and yes, the, the big name, Justin Fields, ain't there. Justin Fields, he is going to be an early entry into the NFL draft, but uh, I, I kind of feel like you come out of the, uh, the early entry, are you going to go, are you going to come back, the real declaration week, and... That, I mean, Ohio State stands out to me as a, this group that we automatically have to start talking about. Like, that that might be the preseason number one team in the country. Yeah, like, I, I was, we were here last week, and I was kind of expressing, I was like, man, I don't know, Ohio State might take a step back. And, Bud, you were like, nope, they're going to be fine. And now that all these players are announcing that they're coming back, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards Bud's side. I think Ohio State is probably in a position to where it's going to be very good again next year. And the one thing I take away, because like you mentioned, Justin Fields isn't back. And obviously that's a huge question mark, but the fact that Chris Olave is coming back 
take I take that as a sign that he's pretty comfortable with what the QB situation is going to be in Columbus. And, you know, of course, they're there. They're practicing with these guys every single day. So they know what they've got and they know what's coming in the pipeline. And for Chris Olave, who is a guy who would likely be a very, you know, not first round pick, but probably first three or four round pick to come back and with his draft stock and thinking he can improve it with another quarterback besides Justin Fields in that offense, I think that's a good sign for what the Buckeyes have coming forward. And I think on the defensive side of the ball, getting some of those guys back is huge. So, yeah, no, I I think Ohio State is clearly a big winner because if you look at the top four teams, and I I tweeted about this the other day too, like Alabama is clearly losing a lot, but it's going to be really difficult when we're going into this offseason and we start getting into season preview mode of trying to figure out like – how much returning starters matter because Mm. it feels like every single team is going to have a whole lot more returning starters than you're used to seeing. And I could already see every single message board right now is telling itself who we're going to be good next year. Look at that. We've got, we've got nine of 11 guys back on defense and eight of 11 back on offense. Oh, we're going to, we're going to improve by two wins. Then it's like, I feel like every single team is going to be able to say that at this rate. So I, I was already super high on, on Ohio State. I thought they actually might be better at receiver, even if Olave left. And I, I think Olave is really, really good. I just I, I think you know, the, the dudes they signed in last year's class, once they hit their second year, are, are going to dominate. Um, and I think Tom's point about them knowing what they have at the quarterback position behind fields is probably a really good one because of the fact that we had a COVID year. If I assume Ryan Day was rotating in some backups with the ones – just in case Fields came down with COVID, right? More often than you normally would because you kind of had to have an all-hands-on-deck preparation plan here because you have the additional issue of, hey, maybe somebody pops positive as opposed to just an injury. Uh, So I I think that's a really good point. Um, Ohio State, I just – I think they're going to have that element that Bama had this year where it's just who guards them? Who covers these dudes? Because you you got Wilson, you got Olave, and then now all they need is is one of Fleming or or Smith-Jig to, to, you know, rise up if both of them do i mean good god it also kind of helps explain maybe why buki cooper who was a top recruit in their class last year decided to transfer to missouri maybe he got some wind of Olave coming back and realized oh well i'm probably not gonna be able to find much playing time next year yeah i do think also there is a trend that is developing between these elite teams like the top three or four programs and alabama ohio state clemson would probably be the premier three oklahoma could throw in there too that the time, and this is why I liked Alabama this year, the time to pick a team is after they've fallen short and they feel like there's something they need to prove. Alabama wanted, they didn't make the playoffs last year, worst season in a while, first time they hadn't made the playoffs, and they come back on a vengeance, like dominate the entire schedule. We've seen Clemson do that, fall short, come back. You know, last year they came back and didn't work out for them. But I do think... It, there are programs at times, and I, you know, I, when I was at ESPN, I worked with Joey Galloway, and he lives in Columbus, so he's very connected. He works out at the fields, and he would talk to me sometimes about Ohio State and some of the mentality at different years. And sometimes you get some players who have their eyes set on the NFL, and it's get me out of here, give me my stats, and let me go. Other times you get a team that wants to accomplish something special. They want to come back to school because they want to win a championship, and I. I that's why I would be a believer. It feels like that's what's starting to happen with this Ohio State team because these players talk. They just tell you, like they'll they'll talk to each other. Hey, you know, Chris Olave is probably talking to some of these other guys, saying, "Hey, I'm coming back, man. Let's we can win this thing next year. We can go out and high. I don't want to go out like that." 
And I think that's the hard, I don't think sometimes we evaluate. I know we talk about which team we're going to pick and who's motivated, but from the perspective of the influence that it has within the locker room, last year they had the score of the Clemson game last the previous season in the, in the Fiesta Bowl. This year, they're going to have the national championship score, and that will be their goal. Because I was curious to see, like they were so focused on that Clemson game, and then they got past it, and it was kind of like, whoa, we're here. Like, what do we do now? And it feels like it just came up a little bit short because they weren't – that wasn't the ultimate goal. Where this team, I feel like the ultimate goal will be championship or bust. And that's a really good thing for Ryan Day and the entire team to be that focused and to come back with that type of mindset. So there's a, there's a couple other teams that I think that I've got on my list. Um I'll go ahead and open the floor where either, either as uh, notable departures or uh, notable returnees, either from the early entry on the NFL draft or uh, with the extra year for COVID, uh, what, what really stands out to y'all? Clemson bringing everybody back on defense. I mean, literally a 11 of 11 and mm-hmm. some dudes who are already good players. But I, I think, I think Clemson athletically on the back end this year at times got, I'm going to say exposed, but maybe they didn't quite measure up to some of the super elite receivers that they played at times. Um, but those are the type of dudes who, if you have a, a, a fearsome foursome up front like Clemson did when, when they won that, that first title, when they beat Bama, those guys play so much better because they're they're really smart players, knowledgeable and bendable system. He's able to call a lot of different defenses with them because he knows mentally – they can handle it. And, and I do think that next year Clemson's defensive front is going to take a big time step. And with that amount of experience in the back end and that kind of step up, they can take up front that, that to me is going to be a really nice defense. Yeah. James Skalski back for his sixth, sixth season. And, uh, and you've mentioned this before. I, it had been like a year or so since I'd said it, Nolan Turner is an OKG, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 Nolan Turner is limited when, when Nolan Turner had to guard Chris Olave it was it was dust right there, but like you mentioned, Nolan Turner's back, James Kalski's back. Uh, you know, guys like Miles Murphy, Brian Bazee are going to be a step, a year more experienced uh, as sophomores. That's uh, athleticism and experience is a is a, is a damn nice thing for uh, Brent Venables to be able able to have on his side. Yeah, Clemson was somebody I was going to bring up too, and I also think Iowa State is in a similar position where it's getting pretty much everybody back. And I mean, that was a good team that was you know nearly a big 12 champion this year knocked off Oklahoma during the regular season. And I think that's the team going into the big 12 next season. Cause I think Sark is probably going to need a year at Texas before he could really, you know, we can really consider them going into the season like a big 12 title contender. So I think that we're going to be looking again next year where Iowa state is a legitimate big 12 title contender. It's them in Oklahoma. As far as I could see 10 offensive returners, eight defensive returners, quarterback, Best running back in the conference. I I don't know. I think Texas is going to be really good. I'm I'm kind of buying the, the Sark, you know, the hire, the talent on the roster, his ability to, you know, kind of – and I think he's inheriting a pretty good roster. And when I look at Iowa State, I they got a lot of returning guys, but are their guys as good as Oklahoma and Texas? Oh, you're a and certified think- Brock Purdy hater. He's falling short of your I- expectations. Absolutely. He has. And I I think it's, I think he has to take a massive step forward for them to compete with Spencer Rattler and whoever Sark, you know, ultimately plays quarterback 
uh, for the Longhorns next year. Maybe he does. Like, I, I would love to see him do it. But I thought this year Brock Purdy was very pedestrian. And you can't, you can't win any Power 5 conference with just an, a pedestrian quarterback. you got to be special. Maybe he elevates. Maybe, the thing that was kind of frustrating is you sh- if you run the ball as successfully as they do, like that should open up things in the pass game. And it should allow you to have a lot of opportunity. And they just weren't able to take advantage of it. So I'm curious to see. And with all the Matt Campbell love, like I, I love Matt Campbell. I think he's perfect for that job. Like there's some jobs that you feel like, and I would pit like member Rutgers with Greg Schiano, like they were on fire and then he kind of stayed too long. And then he, and it was a surprise when he went to Tampa, but he was there along. I think he probably would have liked to exit earlier. Maybe Matt Campbell is a cyclone for life. Maybe, but like if there was a window and you, and this is why I don't think he wants to go to the NFL maybe ever. I think you would have jumped at this op, this off season to go. But maybe he's looking at one more, maybe saying, hey, I got all these returning guys. I can make this run. I just – I don't think they're as talented as Oklahoma and Texas. And I don't know if they ever will be. I just think it's one of those things in college football, the way recruiting unfolds. It's just a tough place to, to challenge uh, against Oklahoma and Texas. I, I think this, this could be his last year. I mean, like there's – with this amount of returning starters coming back, and what do they have, 10 guys from the all-conference team? Yeah. Yeah. I think who, who elected to come back. I mean, they, they may not be nationally elite, but within the Big Twelve, they're they're pretty damn good. And Texas has to step up to get to their level. Athletically, Texas is probably better. You know, one to eighty-five. But Iowa State's twenty-two is pretty damn good, and they have a better quarterback, I think, than what Texas you know has, has coming back. But I think Matt Campbell can be patient now for one more year, and then he can see, okay, where do I want to go? Does Michigan open up? What happens at Notre Dame? You know, does Penn State open up? Those those type of jobs are the jobs he's always rumored to be because kind of the the thought in the industry is he doesn't want to get his hands dirty in the recruiting game that you kind of have to do in other regions of the country. So we'll see. McDonald's bags? <laughs> I, I don't think McDonald's bags happen, by the way. Yeah. I really – like, I, I don't think that's how this works. Something right? – maybe one did. I don't sure. know because like, like, you can't just make that up. Maybe it was a you know I, something happened with McDonald. There's no way that comes out of thin air though, right? Like I don't think it was, you know, just bands on bands and McDonald's bags that every recruit got. Somebody got a McDonald's bag. I'm convinced that just doesn't pop out of thin air. The extent of it, I would question. I'm just I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, Chip Kelly's got a million dollar meal table, and Tennessee's giving out McDonald's <laughs> bags. Maybe that's the problem with the Vols. I don't know. <laughs> Um, you mentioned Penn State. So I, as I was, uh, you know, scanning the underclassmen tracker from the NFL, uh, like Pat Fryermuth, Jason Owa, Micah Parsons, the struggles uh, were easy to, you know, we, we kind of wrote off Penn State. Like, man, tough year. You know, a lot of like from Noah Kane getting hurt, Journey Brown, like it's just, it didn't, didn't really work out for them. But now, like, what is the... What is the what does the talent on that roster look like? What are the expectations for Penn State moving forward? Because I've I, I cannot I, I would need to do uh, more research than I did. Uh, I did a lot of prep for this podcast today. I did not go through Penn State's entire roster right now, and I think that speaks to a lot of question marks that the Nittany Lions have in terms of who's going to be stepping up. Uh, did Jahan Dotson come back? Did I see that he elected maybe to return, but? Even then, I haven't been all that impressed with him just from my own eyes. But, I mean, are the Nittany Lions going to be able to have a bounce-back season? 
I, I, we mentioned, we talked about this a little bit last week. I, I think that as a roster, they're very talented. I think they've got plenty of talent up and down the roster. For me, the question is going to be the QB position. They're not, in my opinion, estimation, they're not talented enough there to really be a team that's going to compete for a playoff berth. Like I, that to me is what's going to separate them. Even not knowing exactly who Ohio state's quarterback is yet. I'm fully confident that Ohio state's going to have a better quarterback than Penn state has. And that is going to be the gap that keeps Ohio state ahead of them that Penn state's unable to close. So I, I think that th- I think Penn state is one of those teams like 2021 are, they are going to have a much better season than what they had in 2020. They got off to a terrible start. They finished well, but I just, there's too much talent on the roster for them to be as mediocre as they looked throughout 2020. I do think that they do need somebody, the the running back injuries and the opt-outs, I think that hurt them a lot. I think that we're going to see improvement there. I think that will help their offense because the offense was a little one-dimensional. And by one-dimension, I mean there was one player on that offense, it felt like at times. So I think that we'll see the offense improve in its output, but it's also going to depend on, have they hired an offensive coordinator yet? Yeah, Mike Yersich. Yeah. Oh, that's right. They got Yersich. I'm sorry. So I think Yersich might be able to, you know, to see what he can get out of the offense because obviously Shiraka did not work out the way that they want. But again, considering everything that happened this year, I don't know if that was on Shiraka or if that was just, I, I don't know what the situation is there. If Yersich can get more out of Will Levis or, you know, oh God, I can't remember the kid's name now. Now I feel terrible. Who's the I, starter? Oh, Sean, Sean Clifford. Clifford. Yeah. Sean Clifford. Thank you. So, so whether, yeah, whether your sitch can get more out of those two or not, I don't know. I just, I think that they're very talented. I just think that they're an eight and four, nine and three team. You forgot Sean Clifford's name. Like he forgot how to protect the ball when he was on the road. Oh, oh that was too easy. That was too easy. <laughs> um, I do feel like this season, like when we look back on this in 20 years, and you better going to look at this and be like, what was going on? Like this was nuts. And while, I thought we were going to get a pass with head coaching firings, and we didn't, clearly. I do look at the season. I look at a program like Penn State. I look at Michigan. Um, I, even, I look at South Carolina. I think programs that are used to winning, like once it kind of went sideways, like once Penn State lost Indiana, it just totally deflated them. And it, it, football's hard. Like it takes a lot of sacrifice. And you know what the reward is? is winning and feeling like you have a chance it's at these schools feels like you have a chance to win, you know, win the title, win the big 10, get to the championship game. And I, I just feel like it's okay that some players might've thrown in the towel. And I don't think it should have been an indictment on the coaches necessarily, especially. And it seems like the big 10 specifically maybe dealt with this more. And I think it was probably because their, their season was so much more in flux. They had kind of shut it down probably mentally. The players did. Oh, we're playing the spring, and then they're fired back up. They only played, you know, eight games. Some of them were canceled. It was just a mess. So, like, when I evaluate some of these schools in the Big Ten, I think, hopefully if we get back to normal, like at least somewhat normal, that you'll see these teams revert back to what they've been. And what Penn State has been under James Franklin – after seven and six, seven and six was 11 and three, 11 and two, nine and four, 11 and two with some different quarterbacks with a lot of turnover, but a consistent winner that like, can, you know, can they knock off Ohio state? No, I'm not going to go that far, but I think they will probably be a nine or 10 win team next year. And if they maybe find a new quarterback or they get the most out of one of their quarterbacks, maybe it's a 10, 11 win season. So I, I just, I just think the season was really unique and it really hurt some programs because their expectation was winning 
And when they fell short of the goal, like it just deflated them. And it was really a tough year mentally. And I think it's okay to kind of acknowledge that. And I think they'll be back on track. It also makes projecting for next year pretty tough, <laughs> yeah. right? Like normally we, we, we take what the team did last year. We take what the team did two years ago a little bit into account. We look at who they lost. We look at maybe who they add in the transfer market this year, a lot more transfers than normal. And we look at how they've been doing in recruiting. Now, like your baseline, it, is it real? To how much, like, like to what extent? Do, are you going to, if you look at power ratings, I mean, Penn State basically quit for two weeks. Yeah. After the Ohio State game. Mm-hmm. I think if you take out those two weeks and you look at them overall, that's probably a little bit more reflective of the team quality that that will project going forward. I, I, the, all of our numbers are going to be really weird to start next year. I mean, I, I've been thinking about this almost entirely during the, during the betting season for for twenty twenty. Like, how in the hell are we going to project this stuff for twenty one? It's it's really tough because the week to week consistency wasn't there, both in terms of which players were on the field and then also which players gave a damn. Yeah. Yeah, I have no like I I'm looking at my ratings and numbers for this year and trying to figure out what I need to use or even care about as far as evaluating teams going into next season is it's impossible. I have no idea what means anything and what doesn't. One more team uh that you look again, we mentioned they lose them every year, but so uh JT Daniels, we we joked on here that if JT Daniels chucked the deuces after stunting at the end of the season, that would just be heartbreak that, you know, this, this, this temporary wishwashy Georgia pod, I don't know if, how we would be able to handle it, but no, he announces he's going to be back. Uh, Jordan Davis on the defensive line. He's, he's going to be coming back. Um, Zeus white. I don't know if he would have, would have necessarily uh, been like a, he wouldn't have been a high draft pick. I do not believe, but he was draft eligible. He decides that he's going to come back, but they lose uh, Tyson Campbell and Eric Stokes, two very good starting cornerbacks. That defensive backfield, I believe also is losing at least one or two other starters or primary contributors. You're also losing Aziz Ojolari, uh, the edge rusher and Trey Hill, your starting center. So it's kind of a mixed bag for Georgia, right? Like there's, there is the excitement of we've got JT Daniels and we know that George Pickens is going to be a junior, Zeus White. We expect that based on the way that they've recruited that that offense should be able to hum, especially uh, with another year under Todd Munkin. But I mean, is it is it too much to ask for our expectation of this uh, this Georgia team, which in 2020... Number one in the total team talent composite, 67 four and five stars uh, among the 85 on that roster. Is it too much with the loss of of Campbell Stokes and a few other defensive backs to just expect them to be able to be as elite and as strong defensively, particularly on the back end of that defense? I think that there could, it, it might be a situation not all that dissimilar to what we saw at Ohio State this year in which they had a lot of, you know, they, they, they lost a lot of people in their secondary, and that was clearly the defensive weakness that they dealt with throughout the season. But I, I look at Georgia's situation, and I think it's going to be kind of matchup dependent, where it's like how many offenses are they facing next year that are really going to be able to stress that? Because they're still going to have a very strong front seven, and I think offensively they're going to be pretty strong. So I look around the East. I mean, obviously Florida is the one team that you would think, but then you look at who Florida's lost and there's a lot of questions about what that offense is going to look like next year. South Carolina has got a new coach. Tennessee is going to have probably an interim coach. Mizzou, 
Maybe. I mean, we, we saw them take some steps forward this year. It's just I don't know if they're going to be at a point offensively where they're really going to be able to stress what Georgia has defensively. Vandy, I think, you know, a, a new coaching staff. I don't know if you've heard. And I just I look around that division. I'm like, yeah, they're not going to be perfect. I don't think I think that Georgia is going to have flaws. And I think that the people that, that they've lost are going to be significant enough in that we can't be 100 percent sure they're just going to be able to have new people step in and be perfectly fine. But given the context of their situation, I also think that even with that acknowledgement of possible problems, they're still my favorite in the East next year. I would say the one difference between what Ohio State lost and what Georgia lost is that, yeah, they both lost a ton in the secondary. Tyreek Stevenson also transferred to Miami. But Georgia can play a lot of this umbrella stuff and still stop the run pretty easily because they have Mm -hmm. dudes in the front. I mean, Jordan Davis is back. Devontae Wyatt's back, Adam Anderson's back, Nolan Smith is back. They've recruited the positions extremely well with their dudes behind them. Their linebacking core is is pretty sick. So they can do sort of you know, a little, little more conservative. I know Kirby probably doesn't love to do it, but I mean, he, they can sit back and play a lot of too high uh, and, and, and dominate most of those offenses and just not allow explosive plays. For Georgia, I mean, they were the number one offense in the – or excuse me, number one defense in the country in SP Plus this year. So, you know, opponent adjusted and whatever. I think Georgia's hope is that their offense takes a bigger step forward than the defense takes a step back. And if they just don't allow a bunch of explosive plays and they're scoring some points, it's fine if Georgia has like the number 10 defense and nobody ever runs the ball on them and they're getting the ball back to their offense, you know, in in due time. Will you explain the umbrella stuff for the, uh, I mean, you you mentioned it there with the too high, but let's, let's, let's bring in all the the listeners because uh, I honestly, I mean, just, I'll be vulnerable here. I don't know what umbrella stuff is, and I uh, I know a little bit of X's and O's, but definitely not that. Sure. So Georgia is usually pretty aggressive. They 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 play a lot of single high stuff. They 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 want to play a lot of like one rat, you know, where where, where they they have that robber in the middle of the right. field. But that that exposes your guys deep, right? And D- D- Danny's seen it all the time. So Danny is a QB, right? You're running an offense. If somebody can can beat your ass up front without putting that eighth guy into the box, and they're able to play too high. How much of a pain is that for you? Hold on, I'm drawing something real quick because right. this is like what I would do for my daughter. Oh, what does that look? That's like? an umbrella. <laughs> that's an umbrella. Yes. So that's your your two corners and your safeties are back further than they would normally be. They're kind of keeping everybody in front of you, and you know they're able to kind of just see the whole field. And then you're relying on your front seven to do more of the heavy lifting right there. It's a little bit different than cover two because of cover two, these guys would be up further. Up it front. would look you know, just be a little bit different. Um, so it's a little bit more of a conservative approach on defense. Um, there are ways to attack it offensively with the pass game, but here's what I think about Georgia. Like welcome to 2021. Like, let's go. Like, this is what I've been waiting for. This is why I've been hard on them. And I, I, Georgia fans hate me. Cause I was having, like, I was trolling them on social media, but I'm like, you guys aren't good enough offensively to win. They might be this year. And we live in a different era. LSU, their defense was good, not great. I would say even Alabama's defense this year, good, not great, was good enough to win the championship. Like, you have to get some stops. And I, I trust Kirby to do that with the talent that they have. I, I think I told you the stat. I, I, don't know if, I, I don't know if it was three or four. But since 2017, until JT Daniels started, they only had three games. It might have been four, but I'm pretty sure it was three games with 300 yards passing since 2017. Alabama had like six 400-yard passing games this year. Since JT Daniels took over 
in just four starts, he already had essentially three. One, so he had 392 in the game against Cincinnati in their bowl game, 401 versus Mississippi State, and 299 versus Missouri. Like this is – if you're a Georgia fan – like I get annoyed with unrealistic expectations and, you know, Tennessee historically was like, Oh, we're going to win the East this year. It'd be like, whatever. I think this is the year that Georgia should be excited from what they've seen from their offense. Like it is op- They're open for business now. And this is an incredible development for Kirby and the Georgia Bulldogs. So we're going to go back to being a Georgia pod. You can, uh, have me. You, can have me. <laughs> you can of course see us youtube.com slash cover three for full video multi-platform excellence. Also, you can find our full video episodes in the CBS sports pod in the CBS sports app. Uh, just look for the cover three podcast and you can see the, uh, the especially de- if you want to see this really detailed <laughs> breakdown of what a defensive umbrella look looks like. Hey, Podcasting is a visual medium. Hey, the listen, whole mind has been expanded from your drawing. I man. just, I, I, I think that uh, I think it's important that we can we can be there for all of our listeners. Uh, anything it was a a little bit of a busy week again, not only just because of the NFL draft deadline, but a lot of announcements. Uh, any other players or teams that stood out before we get out of here? No. Coca wants us to mention the Tyreek Stevenson transfer to Miami. Bud got that. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, but you were talking about uh, Miami earlier because I, I had them as – Gregory Rousseau opts out before the season. Never really a question. He was going to be going to the NFL. Jalen Phillips, former number one overall prospect, uh, he's going to be off to the NFL. He counts as an early entry as well. Brevin Jordan, again, none of these were really like big, surprising moves, but when you put them with uh, Quincy Roche and, and I look at that Miami depth chart, like I, 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 get, I can really make some stretches uh, to try and look at you know who might be the, the next guy up. Let's see, who did I have here? Uh, like Jafari Harvey, maybe we, we might see sure. him take it, take another step forward. But uh, they also you, got DeAndre Johnson out of the, the transfer from uh, from Tennessee, uh, who should come down to be a nice pass rusher for him. I, and you mentioned I, Bubba I Bolden imp- and a few others, right? Yeah, so you know Bubba Bolden's back, uh, Nesta uh, Silvera's back, and then so so is Williams, the, the offensive tackle they got from Houston in the transfer portal last year, who'll be playing his seventh year of college football, which is you know pretty wild. Look, none of those guys are studs, but they're all, you know, at least decent to good players that Miami is absolutely very happy to have back. They also added Charleston Rambo uh, at receiver. Thanks, Coca, there in in, in the uh, chat on Zoom. And look, Miami's receivers last year were terrible. I mean, they, they dropped every pass Derek King through. They're going to have to be better this year because I don't think he's going to be quite as good of a runner, assuming he's still a starter and can get healthy, you know, back in time off the ACL injury. Charleston Rambo is a good player. Miami got some good players back. They lost some key guys, but I don't think they're going to fall back off a cliff. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to the Cover 3 Podcast wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back with a mailbag episode. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Finnelli. You can follow him at Danny Cannell. You can follow him at Bud Elliott 3 You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.